Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter. We are discussing the final chapters. We're discussing the book as a whole. Um, and yes, Heidi's back. Heidi, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. I promise. Even though I was in Greece, it's good to be back. What's the biggest... What were you most surprised by on this trip? I don't want this to sound lame, but like the biggest surprise to me is that Greece is really green. Like it was so... Hmm. It was a very green and lush country, which I had been there before on vacation in kind of like the rocky islands and Athens, which is not. So I was just pleasantly surprised at how you know, the natural beauty of the place. Green like England or North Carolina? Maybe not like England, but yeah, I mean, just lots of green cypress trees, trees everywhere, Mm. olive trees. Mm. Uh, Yeah, Olympia, especially in the middle of the Peloponnese was just like very, very green. So Mm. loved it. Mm. Erin, have you been to Greece? I have not. Sounds like I would love it. I do love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, I'm sure we'll hear more about this trip, uh, Heidi, you'll have to maybe write something for us about it. Um, some of your, some of your, uh, thoughts, impressions, musings. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Maybe a detailed diary. You do that for England. I'll do it for Greece. Deal. Uh, we are here to discuss the, the final chapters of the Scarlet Letter. And so, uh, before we do that though, I want to just kind of do a quick update on the schedule. So what we're going to do is we are not going to record the Q and a episode for next week. We're going to give everybody a little bit longer to catch up and then ask questions while we are at the Close Reads Retreat next week. So the Q&A episode will go up two weeks from today, not one week from today, uh, From the, if you're listening on Monday. Monday the, what is that, the 19th, I guess. In the meantime, though, we are, some of you might know that um, Cormac McCarthy, noted, a kind of legendary American novelist, died yesterday. So... Over the next few days, today is Wednesday, June 14th, when we're recording this. Over the next few days, uh, Heidi, Tim, Sean, and I are going to be recording um, a conversation in two parts, one with uh, me and Tim, and then one with me, Sean, and Heidi. We're going to record kind of a tribute episode, some of our impressions about him. And we'll, we will do that before we leave, and then that will go up next week. So you will have something to listen to while you're waiting for the Q&A. Um, but then, uh, so, so yeah, next week will be an episode dedicated to, to Cormac McCarthy and his uh his why he matters uh in american lit um my dog just started barking right outside the window i don't know if you can hear it but um yeah seems appropriate um okay so so that's what's coming up next um in the meantime you also will be able to listen to the final conversation that we're having on paralandra as well which will be up very soon so um there's still going to be plenty to listen to while we're at the retreat uh, and then we'll come back after that and answer your questions about the scarlet letter so that thread will be up as, as well on the sub stack okay i'm gonna try to get this question out quickly so i can go put my dogs in and let heidi talk while she answers it but heidi last week karen and i talked a little bit about we we compared this book to several other books including jane austen and then and guest to test of the durbervilles as well which has come up in almost every episode of this converse of, of this series i think and um you had said something to me, which I alluded to on that episode. And you had said that you think that Hester is, you like how she's comp the, the way that I guess Hawthorne complicated her, I think is how you put it. And I think you may have even told me, and maybe you didn't 
know that you said this. You said that uh, you thought that maybe she was even more complicated than Tess was. So now that we're at the end of the book, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of not defend that point, but say why you like this character, why you find it her so compelling and, and complicated. Um, and while you do that, I'm going to go put the dogs in. So I'm going to miss the beginning of this. So Karen, be ready to respond because I'm going to miss the beginning of this response. <laughs> All right. Take it away, Heidi. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, David. I think that Hester is less... She's she's very sympathetic, probably equally sympathetic as Tess, in my opinion, uh, by the two authors. However, I think Tess is maybe a little bit more idealized than Hester is in in the novel, as it held up as as more sinned against than sinning. Uh, whereas Hester, although Hawthorne is very sympathetic to Hester, and so is every reader with a soul, right? <laughs> um, she's she also has a fire to her that Tess lacks, and there seems to be more of an acknowledgement of the complicated nature of sin in the human soul. Its effect on her is not just that Hester is a victim of it, but also that she, uh, in addition to being a victim, she also hardens herself in certain ways and uh, loses herself in many ways. Uh, and that seems just a little bit more human to me than Tess, uh, who seems almost melodramatically, that might be too strong of a word, but I just picture her like tied to a railroad track with Snidely Whiplash standing over her, right? Like Tess is just so, so idealized, um, whereas Hester just has a little bit more complex characterization in her response to her own sad story. So I don't know. That's, that's just my impression. Karen, what do you think about that? No, I, I agree with that. I'm trying to remember what I said last week that made David say, Oh, I'm going to have Heidi. I must've made us a, a sort of a counterpoint. And I don't remember what it was, but maybe David will, but no, I agree with what you've said. And it, um, I mean, I think there are, whether it's, you know, Hawthorne really tried to do this compared to what Hardy was doing, I don't know. But but some of the qualities of the story and of Hester's character, I think, almost demand this. For one thing, you know, to compare the two characters, I mean, um, Tess does have a child, but her child dies in infancy. So Tess is never, you know, uh, never fulfills the role for very long of a mother, you know, she doesn't really, and, and Hester is a, a mother and she's raising this child and that complicates things. Also Hester was, um, is married and has a husband. So she is a much, even though, you know, we don't really get her age and we know she's much younger than Chillingworth. Um, so she's probably, you know, relatively young. She's just much more of a woman and a wife and a mother and all of those things that make a woman more complicated um, in good ways. Um, and, and, and Tess, despite, you know, losing her virginity, becoming a mother for a short time, um, she still retains, that's kind of part of Hardy's point, is she retains this innocence. Um, and so I, I think the, the contrast in those two characters is, is, is right on. And, and uh, while well, David, uh, David, you might have to remind me what I said that that you you made you want to have Heidi make this comment. Um, I don't I don't know that 
you said anything. Yeah. I remember oh, okay. thinking, okay. I remember saying, as I mentioned that, okay. uh, Heidi said that, oh, maybe I should let her okay. express okay. what she means by that. But yeah. it, interestingly, this, the end of this book, well, Hester is still kind of firmly in the picture, shifts a lot towards Dimsdale and he becomes this character who, who we, a lot of the pathos, I guess, is, is directed towards, or rather we are asked to feel a lot towards him. Um, I think Hawthorne, you know, tries to bring it back to Hester at the end when she returns to town, but I, I, you know, we can discuss whether he does that successfully, but you asked, you know, I was, I was flipping through the end of the book, Karen, and looking at some of your, your questions. And I just kept thinking, boy, these are great questions for a podcast discussion. And there's a couple that I wanted to bring up in particular because I think they'll, they'd be helpful for our audience, which I guess is what you're, you're, you know, the point of asking a good question is, right? And you had one in here. And of course, now I can't find exactly what it is, but I know the gist of it. Oh, here we go. This is on the questions for further reflection. Um, and you said in question five, how might the story be interpreted differently if Dimsdale is seen as the main character and we, he kind of becomes, as I say, uh, something of a main character by the end. But how do you, what do you think of this question? Like if, if we, if Hawthorne had thought more actively about Dimsdale as being the main character, how would the, the book be different? And you asked another question, which I really enjoy, um, where you say it, you know, this book is kind of known for its, tightly constructed plot, but is there any elements that could have been omitted in the story would still work or have the same effect? And I would love to, you know, those two questions, I think in some ways go hand in hand, but good questions, Karen. Thanks for the podcast. uh, Making my job easy. I think that Dimsdale is what his name intimates, right? He is a dim kind of person. Like he doesn't have the inner strength to bear up under the situation that he has created for himself. And so psychologically, he is entirely crippled throughout the whole story uh, until his final moments. Uh, And he has this capacity, this talent, right? This capacity to inspire love in his parishioners, to inspire loyalty, um, and also to communicate what is good, to communicate the truth. And I think he has, I think he has a true love of the good within his heart. Uh, but when he falls short of that, he doesn't rise to it, right? He falls and then he kind of just like stays in the dust throughout the whole story. And yeah, like he had, yeah, he has this weakness of character. Um, And, and so if he was the main character of the book, it, I think it would be a lot less interesting because he just stays. I think he's in stasis for almost the entire novel uh, from the moment when he refused at the very beginning, which is a situation much like the end, right? When it's this public, uh, everybody in the, everybody in the town is gathered around the exact same space. The novel begins and ends in the same place. Um, And he refuses at that point to accept responsibility at the beginning of the novel. Um, and then he remains tormented until his final moments of his life when he when when he makes his public confession. Um, and everything that he does in between them and then and now is this double life. Um, and 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 that is uh abundantly clear to the reader and frankly 
is, it, I mean, it's fascinating, right? Psychologically, it's fascinating, but it's so much stasis in between that we need another character with some strength of character who endures suffering on different terms than Dimsdale does. And I think Hester is the right choice for that. She's a hmm. stronger person than he is. Aaron, if he had confessed what he did earlier, would he have been able to withstand the persecution that came with it better than he did his own inability to, to confess what he did? based on what we know of him yeah yeah no 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 i yeah well let me let me just back up a little because i my mind was going in a different direction sure, and, sure, sure. and answer this question no no i mean I, I, and in all honesty i was reviewing my questions for this episode too and i was like oh those are some good questions <laughs> <laughs> so thanks no and then this was one that i that i was thinking about um before logging on today but um it, it is interesting and significant that the title, again, comparing this to other works, but they're written around, you know, in a similar time period, the title of this work is The Scarlet Letter, not Hester Prynne, right? And so, and there are two Scarlet Letters. There is the one that Hester wears, and there's the one that we discover that, you know, Dimsdale may have been may have had you know it's inconclusive because different people say different things at the end but in some way i mean i think an argument could be made um that that dimsdale could be as much of a main character as hester is um and i i think but i think i think whether again to go we can't say what hawthorne's intentions were um, he could have intended both to be as much main characters as not, but it's just simply Hester Prynne is the more interesting character. She's the only True. female in this triad. Um, so, but but I think an argument could be made. I mean, I was just looking over the chapter titles. I didn't do this, but you could go through and you could say, well, how much space does Dimsdale get and how many chapters are devoted to him? It's probably pretty even, but that actually makes it even more more of a case for the fact that that Dimsdale could be as much of a of a main character as as Hester. Um, now to go to back, back to your, I mean, this connect. This is part of my answer. Um, is what Heidi said. I mean, Hester is just a much more interesting character because of her, for whatever her her per, natural personality, and then the things that happen to her, becoming a mother and becoming an outcast. Deep in that strength of character, um, and and Dimsdale. I mean, it's it's he. It would have been, yeah, it would have been a different story. It's, it's so p much part of his character that he cannot or will not bring himself or find the courage to confess um, that it just, it that is who he is. Um, and and it would have been, a, I mean, in, in that way, both Hester, Hester and Dimsdale are foils to one another, right? Because she just carries... The, the burden and he hides it um until the end and yeah you know, i forgot exactly what your question was but i i just don't think he had the strength of character or integrity to ever reveal this on his own until you know until he really almost literally had no choice because because he was so convicted and so weak and dying um, so what is he dying of guilt yeah guilt i think so you ask another question in here that we absolutely have to address. And you um, talk about the idea of, well, your question is how does the understanding of the Scarlet Letter as a romance 
rather than a work of realism, assisting in interpreting and evaluating it as a literary work. And it seems like it's in Dimsdale, the character, as much as anybody else, that this sort of idea of a romance and the genre of the book and what the book's trying to do most comes into focus. You have his um, guilt killing him. Um, you have the maybe, maybe not his own scarlet letter. Um, there's so many mysteries that hover around him, like mystical type things that are happening to him. Um, and then in the end, you know, the narrator kind of says, well, this is a, this is a legend. So it got passed down a legend down to me. And so I'm sharing it with you. Do you, do you think that if the book had focused even more on Hester, it would have been less clear that it was a romance, but would it have been more in the kind of more emphasizing the, the realist elements? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good question. And I think, I think it, it would have because Hester is the more complicated, more realistic mm. character. Um, and so maybe, you know, that's another argument, you know, another strike in favor of an argument that would elevate Dimsdale as more of a, of a main character because of what the story is trying to do. Um, and the fact, you know, that, that the scar, the scarlet letter, you know, is a symbol for guilt, obviously, but Hester has guilt and bears it one way. Um, Dimsdale has guilt and bears it another way. And the real sort of, well, I don't, now I don't want to say the real moral of the story is is what happens to Dimsdale, but may, maybe it is. Um, there are other morals too that he kind of slips in there and maybe we can get to those, but that's the obvious one. How do you, how do you feel towards Dimsdale in the end? Or what do you think, however you want to respond to it? Yeah, I think that he, I kind of think he like, redeems himself i think that there's a moment of salvation in being seen and i think that we uh, in confessing himself not getting caught or being found out uh and mm. and i think there's a mutual to to your point karen i think that dimsdale and hester are both main characters in in that there's this mutual salvation between the two of them like they 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 there's a mutual sin and loss uh, and suffering. And then there's this mutual salvation towards the end. Like because of Hester, uh, he confesses. And and then because of Dimsdale, she, I, I mean, I would absolutely argue, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I would absolutely argue that she did exactly the right thing by putting on that scarlet letter and coming back into the society and that that was an act of, of penance, uh, not penance, of repentance, rather, um, and salvation in response to his final words. As he is dying, he invokes her, right? He says to her this very moving speech uh, that he says, hush, Hester, hush, that law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed, let these alone be in thy thoughts. Uh, it may be that when we forget our God, when we violated our reverence each for the other soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. God knows and he is merciful. He hath proved his mercy by giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast. So he sees his own scarlet letter and by extension hers as gifts from God to move them to repentance. 
Uh, and he urges her to, to bear the stain of that sin unto death, just as he is doing here in this moment. Uh, and it's interesting to read this book while also reading Brothers K. Exactly. Right. Or, ha- or having, and having read, read Loris. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and so there's, there's a little bit of, there's some chatter, some questions, some comments even um, over on Substack about Nathaniel Hawthorne's uh, kind of turning towards Catholicism towards the end of his life. Was there a conversion or was it just a sympathy, right? We can see some of that here in the Scarlet Letter, this idea that you, that, that, that in following in the footsteps of Christ, we are continually on earth in a, in a way bound to bear our own sin and the sins of others. Um, n- not not in the sense that Christ's death and doesn't cover it, but in the sense that we are we are marked by that as until the eternal and until eternity, um, and and so I, I I think that his end is good, and I think that it is uh, by the end I feel um, very positively towards him as though he has. Um, atoned for what he did in those final moments by bringing it to the light. So, Okay. So I want to ask a question. I'm trying to figure out how the book wants the, the, the plot points of the action to be working together. Right. So we have during this procession, we have, uh, he, people are recognizing what's going this where do you get all this energy? Basically, you know, he's so different. What's, what's the deal? Then he gives this sermon and everyone's, and you know, wrapped. Right. And as you say, in one of your questions, we don't get the words that he says, but we do get the sound of it, you know? Um, then after that, all kind of quickly, not all of a sudden, but quickly he deteriorates in his guilt and he, and he dies, you know, like it's not that long after the sermon and after he had just been shocking people with his vitality. <laughs> um, so what is the relationship between his performance, if you will, during the procession and his sermon and his almost immediate down, you know, deterioration, confession and death. Is there supposed to be a cause and effect there? Is there, is there supposed to be um, something mysterious that happened from the pulpit how do all those elements work together karen what do you think about this and how do you jump in yeah no i was actually because this the end is so um it's actually pretty intricate the plot is pretty complicated and i was i was and i want i wanted to review some of these points and just make sure i have it all right in my mind too um because some of the gets lost in all the description but if we back up a little bit further it's actually hester's i think it's significant that it's hester's idea for them to, you know, escape, go back to Europe. Um, you know, she tells him that he can, he can, you know, take up a new name and take on a new life. That's her idea um, for him to, him to do that and for her to go with him. And I think that's significant because that's when he goes, you know, out of the woods and he's, he's feeling that he goes out, he has the new energy that, that we see later, but also he has these temptations to say wicked things to the parishioners that he encounters. Um, and so it's, I think that, I think that's something I don't really, I just, I don't have a thought yet, but I think it's, I think it's worth talking about a little bit. The fact that 
feels like they can go on and and begin a new life? And is that because she has already, you know, been punished for her sin? And then everything that you just talked about, David, follows from there. Like he, you know, he gives this sermon. It kind of saps the rest of the life out of him. And he's not able to do this thing that really was a good plan. But then there is also a wrench that's thrown into it. And that is, is so much, mm-hmm. it just seems sort of accident, that's the, uh, accidental, but you know, that the, the captain or the, whatever his name is, you know, um, tells Hester that, that, you know, a, another man um, has come and is going to join them. And, you know, that's chilling. But, but Dinsdale doesn't know that, right? Right, right, right. He doesn't, that's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to piece together. He, unless I, that's what I wanted to double check. He doesn't know. She knows that. He doesn't know that. Um, and so why why does it happen that way? I guess that's kind of what I'm asking. What difference does that make that these find I mean, there's a lot that happens in those last few chapters, um, a lot of plot going on. And I think each piece matters, but it's so much that I, I haven't quite worked it out in my mind. And he even says, this is better than what we dreamed of in the forest. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what he tells her. Go ahead. Yeah, Anna. yeah, yeah. I remember reading this in high school and wanting so much for Hester and Demsdale to escape. Like, just like, that would be the perfect thing. And feeling a sense, I remember feeling this like sense of doom, like no way that they get away with it. No way that this, this will happen, but that would be the best case scenario. And reading it now as an adult, 20 plus years later, thinking, thank God they didn't like, like not wanting that, just having this, Hopefully, I've lived some life since then, right? That and you've read lots of Russian novels, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's never it, you, they never get to get away with it. <laughs> um, but even that phrase, "getting away with it," implies that they are that that there's something wrong with being able to escape. Which, to your point, Karen, is really complicated because they they are under this uh, hypocritical and corrupt entrenched social order that all of us see the problems with right especially in this procession that's highlighted like the pomp and the power of this uh puritan power structure right uh and and we're kind of hanging back in a sense with hester wanting nobody around us right like ew look at that um and 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 yet there's something in us that instinctively knows they cannot escape this but and but that it's not about just the power structure there is something within the order of the world uh that resists the idea of being able to slink away right um and and just uh without some kind of stand like taking some kind of stand and i think it's pearl that that communicates that and that she will not kiss him or accept him until he is honest, right? Pearl insists on honesty. Unlike her mother, she does not accept the terms of secrecy and escape, right? She insists on revelation, a public display and an honest acknowledgement from her father, um, and since Pearl is indistinguishable from the Scarlet Letter, right, itself, uh, sh- then, then, then there's something in the novel in the, and, and I think that reflects the order of the world that, um, 
that we have to own. We have to own what we have done in order to be free from it. And so to love Demsdale and want him to be free means that we have to uh, want him to publicly confess what he has done and take the consequences. I'm glad you brought up Pearl because I, I was thinking about her yesterday because my daughter, Lydia, who's four, so a little younger than Pearl, but she does this thing where like when I leave, and I could be going to the grocery store, which is a quarter mile away to pick up a gallon of milk. And she gets absolutely angry <laughs> if I don't give her like seven hugs, right? Like every step I take out the door, there's like another hug. And it's, you know, can be a little annoying at times if I'm trying to get somewhere fast, but obviously it's, it's very sweet. And, you know, it's great that she loves me and I love her and all that kind of stuff. Right. But it got me thinking about Pearl because what Pearl just wants is for him to, I mean, I'm putting it over simply, but she wants him to acknowledge her. She wants, he wants it not to, she wants it not to feel mysterious and strange. And like, why is he being a weirdo? Right. She just, she wants him to give her the, give her the hug. Right. And then, so when, and there's a, so much pathos in her character, just being a child who wants that. And then in the end, when she then reciprocates, um, well, she, she acknowledges him and they embrace and she kisses him. It's, you get that payoff of all the times throughout the book in the woods when she's like, why won't he talk to me like he would in the woods? Why does he only do, she doesn't understand, right? And so then when you finally get that, that's one of the most dramatic payoffs of the whole book in a book where you have all these like relation trying triangle triangles of relationships but no one actually really physically interacts with each other until that moment and so you get that's a very like physical um, uh, expression of affection which i think is really really meaningful and there's like a purity to it unlike all the other relationships that, or at yeah. least what what's being worked out is the purity of all these, or lack thereof of all the other relationships and the outgrowth of impure expressions of relationship. Go ahead. I agree with that completely. Like, and so much of the action of this novel is under the surface. It's interior. It's internal in the characters, and what. Uh, what p- other people see is so different from what is really going on within each yeah. character. That's true for everybody across the board. That's except for Pearl, right? Pearl is what you see is what you get. Um, whereas the other characters, Dimsdale, Hester, and Chillingworth have a public persona that's very different from their private interiority. And that creates this really interesting kind of, um, juxtaposition of multiple identities, the public identity and the private identity, um, and how how those two levels in each character um, manifest themselves in interpersonal relationships and in their own psychology is, I think, really, really interesting. And so to your point, when Pearl has this moment when she publicly kisses him and acknowledges him, it's almost like this fairy tale moment when she's the prince and he's the sleeping princess, right? And mm. she's the one who sets him free. Uh, and 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 then he can go into the other world being forgiven or absolved um, by this character who's the only one who is ever truly herself in any meaningful sense as a holistic character on the stage, either publicly or privately. So, yeah, go ahead, Karen. No, I was just going to add to that and say, and of course, she's the only, she's the one who is able to escape, you know, this closed community um, mm. by the end. Um, and even, even Hester, 
really isn't. I mean, she, she theoretically she could have, but for whatever, you know, it's not really clearly answered, but she's drawn back to this place when she could have left. And, you know, I, again, I keep, I keep getting stuck on that, um, on that, her, her finding out from the, the ship's captain that Shillingworth plans to come with them. And I wish I had thought about that more when I was writing my questions. Um, but I think, I think that's, I mean, I think that's really key because she learns and we as the readers learn what Heidi was saying before that you, you can't get away with these things. You, you can't, you're not going to get away with it. And I think, I think that's the role that the, that this information Hester gets, um, that she, they're not going to get away with it. Shillingworth is going to follow them, haunt them. Um, Damsdale doesn't know that. So he has that re kind of release that she doesn't have. Um, because she learned, I mean, she, or, or she's confronted with that fact, you know, you're not going to get away with this. There is no escape. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, yeah, I'm really stuck on that one what plot you, point. <laughs> what, what do we think of the way uh, Chillingsworth falls off a cliff metaphorically after the death of Dimsdale? Although it would have been in keeping, it would have been interesting if he'd have fallen off a real cliff. Um, but he pretty much, it says he quickly after, after Dimsdale's death, he, he, withers away too is it supposed to be something like well we've got these you know he there's like a life force that's connected between them <laughs> you know uh I, you know yeah no that's a that's a good question and i think i mean we talked we touched on this a little bit last week but i was thinking about this again where we were talking about the difference you know roger chillingworth's um sin is perpetuated over time and kind of in in cold blood which is different from the the passion the, the passionate sin that um that Dimsdale and Hester committed um but is it is it talking about him in the line in the in one of these chapters is it where I guess it's the narrator says that love and hate are the same um I know I marked that but I think that's talking about Chillingworth's hate bottom of 406 yeah yeah it is a curious subject of observation inquiry whether whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom uh and that is in the context of talking about Chillingworth. i think that Chillingworth's hatred and his vengeance um is what killed him i mean with jimsdale it was his guilt um and i think Chillingworth's just his 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 yeah, that root of bitterness. I mean, it, it was, it just was fatal. Yeah, it's, we, you talked earlier, David, you asked the question about the genre of romance, right? That, uh, that especially with Hawthorne writing in a, uh, in a literary landscape of realism, um, he chooses a different way. Like he brings in these supernatural elements, the A in the sky, the, you know, uh, the A upon the hearts of, of Dimsdale, um, and Hibbins, like Mistress Hibbins is, you know, the, the, the text seems to accept her as a witch that communes with the black man. Right. Um, and, uh, so in spite, we have all of these supernatural elements, um, and, and, and one of them is the mysterious deaths of both of the men of the story, right? They, they die of their spiritual condition. Like it causes a physical death and, uh, it's manifested in their physical body so much so that it, that it takes them to the grave, one, uh, you know, ostensibly to his doom and one to salvation. Uh, and, um, and yet in spite of those 
supernatural elements, because it's a romance, they are, there's still this psychological realism within the novel that if they were to die of their spiritual condition, it would be one of this guilt. And then the release comes, he's, he's not, you know, Dimsdale really can't live in the world ever. He's not strong enough to, to survive in a sense, um, the public confession and acknowledgement of what he's done. So it seems fitting and right. Like it fits psychologically within the story that he would die at that moment. Um, and it also fits psychologically within the story in a literary sense as well, that, that Chillingworth needs to kind of fade away and disappear because his entire existence was bound up with vengeance. And once he's robbed of that, what's he going to do? Right. Um, so I, I think it's true to the story uh, within the world of the story um, and the rules, so to speak, of the world of the story that that Chillingworth dies here of his, as you point out, his vengeance, his vengeful spirit. Um, I What do you make of him? We lost David. Um, that 12 percent just couldn't hang in there for the whole time. Um, and uh, so what do you. What do you make of of Chillingworth leaving his money to Pearl? Is that a redemptive act? What do you think about that? Oh, I I, I think that is one of the sweetest, tenderest parts of a of a story that doesn't have much of that. I mean, right? Um, yeah, because we we he's clearly Chillingworth has clearly established himself as a as a hateful, vengeful, bitter man who can. Is, I mean, he has just cause, but he's not going to forgive and he's going to pursue his vengeance um, to the point of death of Dimsdale and himself. And so and he he has no I mean, Pearl is not his daughter and he's obviously not happy with his his wife. Um, so Pearl being his wife's daughter is not um, is is not naturally sufficient for him or um, superficially sufficient for him to care for her or love her within the context of the story. And so it's kind of a surprise at the end. Um, and it's, it, it's interesting because that does tell us something about his character yeah. that we really haven't seen all along. Right. So what does it, so what does it tell us about him that might, might that is surprising? Yeah, I think it is. It's complicated um, because for obvious reasons, we would not expect that of him. He's been so vengeful. But it is interesting that his vengeance has been oriented pretty much only toward Dimsdale and right. not towards Hester and Pearl. Mm -hmm. um, and so is that, does that, what does that mean for his character? Does that mean he has forgiven them, that he acknowledges Pearl as the daughter he could have had if Hester had been faithful, it kind of recomplicates him away from just being this demonic villain um, right. and then making him a little bit more human here at the end. And to your point, I really like that, that, mm -hmm. that he is not, that, that there's, it's a little more complex than just him, like, you know, shaking his fist at the world as he goes out dying of his vengeful spirit. Um, right. And I, and I think this, uh, I mean, we had established earlier, you know, whatever that episode was that, that Chillingworth does take some responsibility for the adultery in as much as he says that he basically, that he had no business marrying Esther in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And so this, I mean, there is, you know, it, it, in several ways, this story is about the plight of women. Um, 
And not just, you know, a woman who's caught in adultery. I mean, that's clearly the surface level um, theme related to the plight of women. But even if, even toward the end, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but the but and I mentioned this in the discussion questions, but it just it kind of closes on the on the note of women, the women who come to see Hester and how, you know, it's going to take a, a, a woman prophet uh, someday who's more pure than Hester is um, to bring about a new revelation um, that that I don't I don't want to I don't want to botch this by paraphrasing it um, too badly. But uh, this is at the on page 410 uh, by addition the very and next to the last paragraph or something, uh, talking about Hester and her cottage and these women who come, is as she assured them too of her firm belief that at some brighter period, when the world should have grown right for it in heaven's own time, a new truth would be revealed in order to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a surer ground of mutual happiness. Earlier in life, Hester had vainly imagined that she herself might be the destined prophetess, but had long since recognized the impossibility that any mission of divine and mysterious truth should be confided to a woman stained with sin, bowed down with shame, or even burdened with a lifelong sorrow. The angel and apostle of the coming revelation must be a woman, indeed, but lofty, pure, and beautiful, and wise. Moreover, not through dusky grief, but the ethereal medium of joy and showing how sacred love should make us happy by the truest test of a life successful to such an end. I mean, that on the sur a surface level, that is a weird way for this book to end. But that's how it ends. And I think it touches on a lot of the things that we've talked about, even Hawthorne's sort of future um, interest, in more, you know, more obvious interest in Catholicism um, and a pure woman who redeems mankind um so i don't know thoughts about that yeah i i mean it also ties it back to the reference to ann hutchinson and the roses right at the beginning of the novel uh and uh and that there's something about a a woman set apart a woman owning a powerful influence upon society uh that um, that's going to make her an outcast in some way. And all meaningful prophets are outcasts, right? Um, and so, Hester, um, there is this sense, I think, of that Hester could have been, and it's partly society, like, it's partly... It's partly society that keeps her from being a powerful agent of change within the culture because she really isn't. At the end of the novel, the society is the same. There is no major disruption. Um, and so she she doesn't do it. And that's partly because the society itself is, is corrupt, is hypocritical. Um, and I think, I think within the novel, there is... There is this sense that it's partly because of what she did, right? That there is an, a moral order that was violated by Hester. Um, like and she was Moses, so she couldn't see the promised land. Yeah, exactly. That's a great. That is really great, David. Yes, <laughs> um, and partly that partly that fall is even more highlighted because she has this beauty and grace and inherent power within her that influences the world. Um, and, and so there so, is a sense of, so if she makes another choice, she could have ushered in a new 
potentially a new, what is it what does it say a new truth i mean it was the idea that if if she had not made the choices that she did committed the sin that she had she would have been able to establish the whole relation between man and woman on a sure ground of mutual happiness I mean, she had the upper hand in the relationships with both. I mean, she had power with both Dimsdale and Chillingworth, so much so that they lived their entire life oriented towards her in some way. Because of and her beauty? Because of her beauty, because of her uh, winsomeness, because of her vibrancy, uh, because of some kind of strength of character that is within her. And that she, she did fall. There was, I think within the novel, there is an acceptance that she did fall in some way um, well, through her sexual sin. That. Right. Um, so I don't think the novel entirely points the finger just at Puritan society. It acknowledges a moral order that's been violated by Hester and Dimsdale. Um, however, nobody puts it right. Right. And she makes the best effort at it. She actually does submit to her, um, uh, to her punishment and then comes out the best out of all of them. Um, but that there was something broken in what they did together. And I, I do think that the novel is subtly, and, and I, I think, you know, well, I don't really like biographical criticism, but it matters when we're trying to understand what an mm -hmm. author may or may not have been trying to do. Um, and I think, I think, I think Hawthorne is at least subtly trying to make an argument that it was a it's a violation of a moral order to put a for a woman like Hester to be in the position that she was in to feel to marry Shillingworth in the first place mm -hmm. when that was an unsuitable match and she has no agency or power or options otherwise, mm -hmm. and then um, to be put you know to be basic you know put under to, to be seduced or whatever by her pastor who was someone who, you know, we said earlier, she says, you know, who had power over her soul and knowledge of her soul. And we That's see that come up again with that young girl who thinks that she's done something wrong because he walked past her. Oh, I, oh, in the, oh, when he comes out of the woods. Yeah. Yes. yeah. She yeah, thinks, yeah. and then she's like all upset for a couple of days because she thinks she's done something because he holds some kind of, he holds yes. an ability, you know, to influence. That's a great connection. Right. And so these are subtler violations of a moral order, but I think that they are ones that Hawthorne sees and has the story um, display. And so, um, you know, and we know that, he, and I talk about this in the introduction, like he had a really happy marriage. I was just going to say, and, did, yeah, he, yeah. did he have a happy marriage? Because here at the end, he's like, Marriage can be happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we also know from their letters as much as we can tell that, you know, that there was they were chased before marriage. And, you know, and so like he he's someone who believed in and lived, you know, a certain moral order and believed in happiness between men and women. Um, and so I, you know, I think the, the text suggests this um, and we can back that up with what we know about Hawthorne's life as well. So. Heidi, were you going to say something? I was just going to make an existential reflection that I've never thought of before. It's like, does Perfect. it take, does it, this is a real question, not a comment. Like, does it take a, a, a happy marriage to be able to see a woman like Hester without a th being threatened by, a, by that, right? Like it, Hawthorne invented this woman, but, and he obviously thinks highly of her, but, and I'm, 
I'm just wondering if if the fact that he was happily married um, enabled him to see women as more somebody like Hester, a character like Hester, um, as more. Whereas if he had had been in a uh, loveless yeah. marriage, he'd be more he'd be filled with more bitterness. Right, like people judge beautiful women based on their own experiences, right? And that's just true. And that's probably true everywhere across the board, whether it's, well, Heidi, you know, women are like that with men too. So I'm, I'm not trying to um, make any across Dante the board. It was just a thought that came into my head. Right. right. No. Right. And he had to revere her um, in order to, to do that. And I just, so I just think it's interesting that there was a character like Hester was invented by a, happily married man. I just think that's fascinating. Could Francis Bacon have written Shakespeare's plays without his affection for Queen Elizabeth? Oh, Lord, have mercy. I'm just, you know, just throwing <gasps> some know, chaos into the conversation. Right? Yep. <laughs> um, okay, we okay, only have a lot of- one, okay, one thing you just said, though, is I noticed the woods here are very Shakespearean, right? But that, we did talk that, about the woods a little bit last yes, week, yeah. Yes, so you said Shakespeare, and I had drawn it down in my notes, right? The woods' well, natural go- order. Yeah, go similar, on. similar to Shakespeare, like right? Arden like or in something? yes, like in Shakespeare, anything can happen in the woods that could not happen in town. And Hawthorne kind of has that same personification of nature, um, the natural world as this place where, um, where, where, where people go to reorder a disordered society or a disordered life, and and they can while they're in the woods, they can imagine something different. But then upon a return to town, it didn't happen, right? Um, it's only in the woods. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you. Well, in, in American literature too, we get this confluence of the Shakespearean wood with like the medieval fairy tale, creepy but, wood, haunted yes, wood. Yeah, yeah. But also like the, the later version of that, which is Grimm's Brothers version mm. that comes from that part of Europe to America. Um, Washington Irving. Yeah, right? I was the just going to yep, yeah, exactly. And then that becomes, you know, the American version of that motif, um, which, yeah, we could, could talk a lot about that. But we only have a couple minutes left. We're going to do the the next episode um, on the Q&A, of course. So people will, um, will be able to fill in all kinds of gaps. And if you have something that, if we didn't talk about something that you wanted us to talk about, well, ask a question because it's your, it's your one and only chance to, to make sure that happens. Um, let's, let's kind of, I guess let's steer towards some, some final thoughts here. Um, I'll just leave it open-ended. I had some questions, but we'll leave it open at Heidi. What are your final thoughts? What, what is something that we didn't talk about that you feel like needs to get talked about? You take this any direction that you want. And then Karen, you can have the last word or ask the last question. Yeah. I don't know if there's um, anything I'm necessarily dying to talk about. It's, it's a complicated novel. And I like Karen, what you said a few minutes ago that at the end of the novel, so many things happen um, that are intricately connected. There's these cause and effects that aren't always immediately obvious to the reader um, and that deepens the complexity of the novel. One one question I've been asking myself came from a comment that you made, I think, in one of the first episodes, um, and that's um, you talked about the you talk about this in the introduction too that that it's more of a fable, right? Um, and in a fable, there's not a lot of character development, right? There is this stasis amongst the characters; they're representative in a sense, a- allegorical sometimes, um, uh, or you know, you don't. In in a fable, you don't expect 
a character to change psychologically throughout the course of the story. They represent something and they stay that way. Um, and so I've been asking myself, I've never thought of that before in relation to this novel, partly because I don't know the novel as super well, um, like you do. And, and so I've been asking myself, is there any meaningful character development amongst our five core, um, is it four, four core characters? Um, or do they, do they end the novel as they have become in their essentials? And that, that's something I've been really pondering and kind of going back and forth, haven't necessarily landed on anything definitive. Um, but it's been a really interesting speculation. So I thank you for that rich contemplation. I've been just wondering about that as I read. I'm going to post that in this episode as a question for the audience. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear what the audience thinks about that. So in the comment thread on, on this episode, let us know about what you think if the characters basically stay the same in their essentials or if they change. Karen, do you want to, do you want to, uh, say what you think or do you want to wait and see what the audience thinks about that? You know, I'll, I'll wait and see what the audience thinks. I have a few preliminary thoughts, but my closing thought for this actually does go back to the audience because I, um, you know, I, I sort of randomly pay attention to the, to the Substack comments I, um, as they got my email alerts come. And I've noticed that a few people have said in response to our, our last um, episode that, they agree that this novel, I think it was something that you said, David, um, that this novel is more interesting to talk about than to read. And people have been agreeing with that. And I, I agree with it, too. And so I've just been thinking about, well, you know, what makes um, what makes that so and what makes a book that's I mean, because it's not just I mean, we all there's always whenever we're reading something from, you know, more than 100 years ago. 200 years ago, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's, there's that sort of distance and foreignness mm -hmm. that we have to overcome in engaging with it sure, meaningfully. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's here in this novel, but it's not just that it's also just that it is, it, it's ideas are more interesting than it's writing, I guess, or the, than the story. Um, and so um, I guess I would just, I want to think about that more and maybe hear from other people who have been saying that, that it's a more interesting um, book to talk about than to read. And and I agree. And is it, is it the writing? Is it the lack of character development um, to go to Heidi's question? Um, the lack of an interesting plot, you know, what, what is it that gives it that quality? Um, yeah. That's what I would put out there. Yeah. The last 10 pages or 15 pages are more interesting to read than the earlier part of the book. Like it definitely has, more things happen and there's a more forward momentum, right? Mm -hmm. Like you feel like people are at real risk and then mm -hmm. you know, in the end the people are just kind of dropping like flies. Um, and, uh, well, you know, two do two of the four do. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think for me, it probably in answer to that, you know, about my own comment there, I think probably it does have to do a little bit with the plot but I think sometimes it's there are not a lot of books that are able to be about ideas that are exciting to read. There's just it's like that takes it that's a rare mm -hmm. gift. I mean, Dostoevsky is one of the few that I think is where where you you come into the book and the book tells you it's about ideas, mm -hmm. but then it also, you know, there's plot that's happening in those conversations about ideas that's compelling. Um it's one of my favorite genres to think about 
like with modern books, what books are, what are, what, what are the best books about people sitting around talking about ideas? Um, I'm kind of like building out a list of books written in the last 25 years that fit that category. Mm. Um, and it's just, there's not a lot of them that can do it act that, that can do it well. I mean, in a way that makes it exciting. There's lots of books that are about ideas that, that are compelling treatises or, or questions after ask quite compelling questions about those ideas, but doing both of those things is difficult. And most people will want both of those. You know, some people just love the ideas, right? That's all I care about. I don't care about the other stuff. Some people, you know, that pathos and the, the emotion of it. And it's difficult to, to draw out emotion when you're talking about something abstract. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot uh, because of thinking about what books to do on shows and at retreat uh, and during retreats and things like that, because the combination of those two things is like you, if you don't get as much investment it from, from people who are reading it, listening, coming to retreats or whatever, if they don't have that emotional investment as well, the intellectual investment is, is one thing, but when you have both of those, that's when you get really great experiences for the most amount of people, which is kind of what I'm kind of having. That's sort of what I have to think about a little bit when I'm putting together book lists and trying to produce a podcast and all that. So, um, it's an, it's a, yeah, to your point, it's a fascinating idea that I, I too am thinking about. And now I'm rambling to give you guys a chance to think about anything else you might want to add. So this is your chance to add anything else that you might want to add before we go. No, I just want to see that list that you're making. Yeah, okay. All right. I find it all. Let me keep, let me make it a little more comprehensive. <laughs> I might have some to put on there. So it's a good yeah, thought. Yeah. I said, this is a good, this is a fruitful conversation to have. Uh, Karen, anything else? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered what I wanted to cover and I'm looking forward to the questions. Yeah, that always yeah, is yeah. Uh, focusing. It's both focusing and widening. What's the other? What's the opposite of focusing? Um, Karen, I want to ask you one thing before we go. Unless, Heidi, do you have anything else? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you this. This is what the f- the fourth book, I think, that you've been on the show for where we read through one of these editions that you worked on. Um, in reading through it again, is there anything that you wish that you would have included or that you think about differently having read it this time through and then having being forced to talk about it for like six hours uh, that you would then say, oh, I wish I'd thought about that when I was doing this, this, this edition. Yeah, I, well, I which mean, by the way is a great edition. To... I'm not saying it's oh, not. I'm just right, right, right. No, no, but this is. I mean, this. I mean, you can't write anything and not look back and go, "Oh, I should have said this or this." No, but uh, in our discussion today, like actually just thinking about all of those little elements of the plot. I mean, I had the question about the intricate pieces, and nothing could be removed. But I was thinking more like the big, the big things, the big pictures, and I and just that um, the things that happen in these last few chapters especially with the ship captain i keep coming back to this telling hester about chillingworth's plan and how that had no effect on dimsdale's fate no it had no no effect on no clear effect on the plot but it matters it's in there um and so i wish i had looked at kind of the seek those that sequence more closely as I was reading and uh, drawing out questions and um, and even preparing for today because I didn't really have a clear answer and um, 
but that that actually helps me to see actually a lot of the discussion i mean any discussion like this does it but today's discussion really helped me see um just how more layered and intricate and more more is going on in this in this book than i even saw before so Mm -hmm. well we're uh grateful to you for for joining Mm -hmm. us Spending the time, I mean, it's not it's not a small amount of time that it takes to to do this. It's not just the episodes that we the time that we're spending recording the the six hours or whatever. It's the reading and the thinking about it and the getting email notifications with comments and all the different things that go into it. So thank you. If you're up for it, well, I, no, no, thank you. And actually, I need I, there is one more thing I want to say. Yeah, yeah. I um, it's actually it's uh, and I maybe I said this before. I don't remember, but it was the I was trying to decide. Um, which which book I was going to do as my final, as my sixth book, because all the others were already easy to pick out. And I was trying to decide between The Scarlet Letter and Robinson Crusoe. And I, I was in the Close Reads podcast Facebook group. I'm quite sure that I asked which book people would rather see. And I and it was kind of The Scarlet Letter. So uh, it's you guys... Um, are responsible for this and help me and guide me. And so it's really just, I mean, and there've been other things too, the covers and whatever. It's just a great resource. So it's kind of, it's an honor to kind of give back to the community because I feel like um, they've given to me and helped me, you know, do this project in a way that would serve people well. And I'm pretty certain they're buying, are buying your books. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I really appreciate that too. (laughs) Go ahead, Heidi. I was just going to say, having Karen on, having you on, Karen, is one of my favorite Close Reads traditions. So we, we want you back next year if you're willing yeah. to come back. You know, Heart yeah. of Darkness is a book that we get yeah. asked about occasionally. It's not real long. You know, it, right, right. One of those. It yeah, be, let's do it. And it's that was a bit written in what, like 1910? That no, like 1899, I think. No, 19. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, but it, it's. Maybe a, it was 1910. It's a little more contemporary than than some of the other books that you've that you've done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we can do a whole episode on Apocalypse Now. Oh, have you seen Apocalypse Now? I mean, I saw it when it first came came out. I think I I, I, it, on I probably need to re rewatch it. I know, I know, and that's why I saw it, and I didn't. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. It's been a minute. Well, yeah, again, yeah. thank you so much, and of course, thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks for your your ongoing feedback and your comments and everything. Thanks for spreading the word, and uh, for those of you who are uh, supporting the show on Substack and listening to the bonus content and all that, we appreciate that as well. Don't forget to uh, leave a response to this week's question about the uh, whether these characters change, and then of course, don't forget to you know ask a question in the thread. We'll get to as many as we can. And again. Just a reminder, next week's episode is going to go up on Monday, the 19th. It's going to be a kind of a tribute a tribute um, episode. I think I was almost going to say tribute album. A tribute episode to Cormac McCarthy. And then the week after that is when we will air the the um, episode, on the Q&A episode. But it will be going up a couple days after the normal time. It won't go up on Monday, the 26 because we'll have been at the retreat so we'll have to record early that week so that episode will be a couple of days late so that's that's what's happening over the next few weeks and we will have a schedule for um what's an oh shoot what's next heidi um daniel I, know. Book. I, I think it's daniel nairi's book <gasps> no way everything sad is untrue yeah, i believe that's next oh, so, i'm even more excited that's I a much different experience so much than yeah. scarlet letter <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah crazy about that uh, book 
yeah that'll be that'll be fun so okay i think that covers all the all the business all the bases again one more time thank you so much for doing this karen we really appreciate it and uh heidi it's great to have you back thanks so, i'm glad to be back for heidi my Wayne one for- week gone <laughs> <laughs> for heidi white for karen swallow prior i'm david kern thanks so much for listening and until next time happy reading Thank you.